bore, partly because you get it all into 15 minutes. Um, uh, but also, how lovely to have your eulogies now so you don't need a funeral. <laughs> I always think it would be much more sensible to do it all before we die, wouldn't it? And uh, you've got a lot, a lot of time to go, I'm sure. So, good morning. I brought a little globe along just for fun. And I thought I'd ask the question at the beginning of today, how far west is the sun? How far west is the sun? I could have actually brought an entire map of the local area, which is Ordnance Survey. I've got a really nice one in here. And then you would ask the question, where is the sun? Not on this map. Not today it isn't. It's very strange out there. So an interesting, this is actually local, this one. This one's uh, Guildford and Farnham, Godalming and Farnborough. So we do have sun these days, don't we? Sometimes we have far too much of it. Uh, but where is the sun and how far west is it? Uh, the reason I'm asking is sometimes we ask the question or ask a question that makes absolutely no sense because we don't think in the right set of terms. If we have an earthbound view of the world, we might see the, world, the sun rising or the sun setting. But of course, the sun isn't rising or setting. We're just spinning around a bit, aren't we? It's just that our view of the world is that the sun rises and sun sets. So if the Lord's name is going to be praised from when the sun rises to the sun sets, exactly where is that going to be? But that's a in a theological terms, it's an anthropomorphic idea. In other words, an idea that we, as human beings, have within our own context or our own understanding. Now, you might say, well, why are you saying all this today? I'm going to put it another way. I have this wonderful little thing over here. Number sequences. Who likes a number sequence? Good. Not many, though. Okay, so that's the number sequence. What comes next? Can I just say, when the sun sets on the horizon, it's not actually really there. Oh, thank you, because it's bending the light. Yeah, that's lovely. You know, my friend, is, I have a friend whose entertainment is to go on Facebook groups of the Flat Earth Society. And there are people from the Flat Earth Society all around the world. Did you know that? And, um, and there's an awful lot of them get terribly excited and very aggressive with him when he points out that maybe the world might not be. Um, let's just go back to this for a moment. 1, 2, 5, 10, 20, 50. What's the next one in the sequence? Thank you. Anybody else got another idea? That was 100 over here. You're kind of right. But you're kind of... Well, you know, there is a better answer that doesn't get more of the point. Anybody? We do this in school, and it's partly, uh, when we've done it in school, it's, it's to get people to realise that sometimes you have to think differently in order to understand the answer. Here is part of the idea. Does that help you at all? 
So, yes, it's 100 pennies, but we don't call it 100 pennies, do we? We call it one pound, because that's all the coins. That's what that is. It's about coins, it's not about numbers. Now, it's all, all the question which I'm asking this morning is that when Jesus wanders around the earth and says things, do we think of it in our terms, or do we think of what he's saying in his terms? And at the extreme moment of Jesus' life, just before he's taken to be crucified, that comes to the point of extremity. This week, we are facing an interesting thing. I don't know how many of you are Conservative Party members. You don't have to admit it in church. It's all right, but, you know, it's something worth confessing. Um, or Labour Party members, or anything else members. Uh, you have a vote if you're a Conservative Party member. Nobody put their hands up, so none of you need to worry about it. They have a vote between two people. Uh, which will probably start Monday or Tuesday this week, which will change who the Prime Minister of this country is. What does God think about this? Now, we're meant to pray for all in authority, and I don't know if the leader of the Conservative Party actually is an authority at all in this country when they actually end up uh, in charge. But I think it is significant to our country, don't you think? Most of us think it's very significant. And even when we're in church, when we're saying, no, 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 the only thing that matters is that God is on his throne, I guarantee afterwards you'll have some strong opinions about politics. The people involved in the passage which we're looking at today were deeply involved in politics. There were the Jewish leaders, which included both Sadducees and Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees were the fundamentalists of the day, the ones who believed in the text and everybody should put it into practice. They were very committed to integrity, but they were just as political as everyone else. The Sadducees were much more uh, kind of floaty in their understanding of theology, but they desperately wanted to stay in power. It was very helpful to stay in power, and they were very uh, keen uh, in the context uh, of the end of Jesus' life to make sure he died and died quickly because he was in the way of their understanding of trying to keep the nation of Israel together and their power and their influence. And then there's this poor chap called Pilate. Now, Pilate was clearly a, uh, a Roman governor. I don't know if you know much about Roman governors, but part of the purpose of becoming a Roman governor was to make a lot of money. Julius Caesar did it in uh, Gaul and made a lot of money by killing a lot of people and stealing everything they had. That's really how it worked. Uh, one of the problems with becoming the Palestine Roman governor is there wasn't a lot to steal and it was a pretty shoddy job. But he was still a politician, like politicians on the television today. And he had a very ruthless view of the world because all Romans had a very ruthless view of the world. But there was a strange uh, understanding that you were meant to keep the law and trying to keep the peace and try and keep things running because actually when you retired you wanted to take all the money that you got with you back to Rome and function. But in the meantime you had a certain level of pride to run the world practically and pragmatically. Now one of the things I've found about Christians, and some of you are Christians, is that we sometimes, uh, on Sunday, we're going, we believe in the kingdom of God. And on uh, Monday, we're back to, well, let's just be practical. And let's just be practical often goes down the route of, it wouldn't be a bad idea if Jesus died in order to just get him out the way of our simplicity of life and getting things done. Uh, one of the things which I would encourage you to think about today is this. To what degree are you in your life actually just a bit of a politician, a pragmatist, 
And to what degree are you actually following a Jesus whose kingdom is not of this world? When we start talking about who God is and how God sees the world, Jesus as a human being, who is God as a human being, standing in front of Pilate, was not threatened by this world at all. He wasn't threatened at all by the chief priests, uh, the Sadducees and the Pharisees, the Jewish leaders, nor was he threatened by Pilate at all. He was about to have a terrible experience, which was the cross. But here's the most important thing, and the point that I'm going to make in my 15 minutes, even if I talk longer. Um, and that is that Jesus is not after your sympathy. When you, even if, you, if today we were doing bread and wine and we were thinking about the cross, the reason that I become a Christian is not because I go, oh no, I did terrible things and Jesus is now on the cross. I, must, I feel so bad. I pity Jesus so much. Jesus is not after pity. I think he'd like an apology and he wants worship. But he does not need pity. Part of the reason he doesn't need pity is this. That even as he stood in front of Pilate, he knew that three days later, he would rise from the dead. And after that, he would be able to say, all authority in heaven and earth belongs to me. So go and make disciples of every nation. And he knew that at one point, there would be a day when all the nations of the earth, all the kings and princes and presidents and whatever else we see at the moment you know, in our news bulletins, and we're going, all these people think they know what they're doing, but all the nations of the earth will become the kingdom of our God and of his Christ. And that means Jesus would be the king of everything. He knew that the day before they arrested. I'm not saying that the experience of the cross was something that anyone wanted to go through. He didn't want to go through it. He said very clearly, take this cup from me. I don't want to drink this cup, but Father, not your will, but mine be, uh, not my will, but yours be done. And he went through the cross, and for the joy set before him, he went through the cross, because he knew the other side of it, people like you and I would be able to come to believe in him, know him, and our lives could be redeemed by his grace in this world. He doesn't want our pity, he wants our apology, and our worship. So here's a, a few little thoughts, though. Truth. If there's nothing else that's going on in our media at the moment, it's a big discussion about what is truth and honesty. It appears that our previous prime minister, although he's still the prime minister at the moment, has lost his job on the basis that some people in politics don't think that he's telling the truth all the time, which seems a radical idea among politicians, but hey. Um, that's what he uh, seems to have been sacked for. Uh, and now we've got two more people who would like to take his job, and they're trying to tell us the truth as they campaign. And truth is a complicated thing. It's no great surprise, therefore, when Jesus mentions the word truth, that the politician of his day, the ultimate politician in his context, who was Pilate, who was the pragmatist of all pragmatists, who would have said, you tell the truth when you need to tell the truth. You don't need to tell the truth when you don't need to tell the truth. What matters is getting things done, because that's how many people in power behave. Uh, and he very definitely says to Jesus, what is truth? And most of us see the whole of that passage on that basis. 
The interesting thing is if you study it a tad, it's really interesting what Jesus does. And I've deliberately focused on the time when he is talking to Pilate rather than talking to the Jewish leaders, which happens in the verses before, because Jesus completely changes his tune. Let's just see if I can unpack it for you. Pilate knows that he's got a political problem. He's got the Jewish leaders who want to get rid of this chap. This chap, they're saying, is claiming to be the Messiah. The Messiah of the Jews, they translate to Pilate as the king of the Jews, because all messiahs, the tradition is, is that around Israel at the time, various different people would turn up saying, I'm the Messiah, and a whole bunch of people would get together with him, and they would uh, do an armed insurrection, a bit like Barabbas is accused of doing, because they're an oppressed people, and they want to be free of the Romans. So the traditional rule is that if someone claims to be the Messiah, or the king of the Jews, that that is treason, because they're claiming to be something which is against the law, because only only king you're allowed to have is Caesar. Therefore, if he claims to be the king of the Jews, very simple, he can be crucified. Of course, the, um, the Jewish leaders, when they're talking to Pilate, never mention exactly that. They just say, he's done something terribly wrong. Because they don't want to actually say that he's claiming to be the Messiah, because if they do that, they get themselves in a political mess with all the people around them. So they're very cagey. If you read it, you'll find them deliberately not using that phrase. Then Jesus and Pilate are face to face. And the first question is, so are you the king of the Jews? Now Jesus knows that if he says yes, then he can die and it will be at his own word. So he says something peculiar. He says, are those your own words or did someone give them to you? Just look, I just, here we go. So Pilate says, so are you the king of the Jews? Say yes and you die. Say no and you're free. And he says, are they your own words or did someone give them to you? And Pilate goes, oh, come on. Am I a Jew? It's your own people who handed you over to me. Interesting, isn't it? And what comes next? Johnny, you read it. Tell us what comes next. So he then says, my kingdom is not of this world. Yeah? And he then says, and if it were, then my people would run around and set me free. Because that's what you do if you're a king of this world. He says, my king kingdom is not of this world. And then Pilate says, so you are a king then, which is back to the same trap question. Yeah? So you are a king then. You'll get me out of trouble if you can say, yes, I'm a king, and I can get you killed. Be fine. Simple. Then I've solved my problem. And Jesus says, the word, for, the word king is your word. That's what it actually says. It says, you call me a king. Uh, and it, you'll find it in other places. Basically, you're calling me a king because it's a, it's a local word. It's a earthbound word. It's actually not that important as a word. If it helps you, then yeah, I suppose. It's your word. And then he says this, and there are very few times in the scripture where Jesus says what he's really about. He says, in fact, the reason I came was to testify to the truth. Anyone who is of the truth 
will hear my voice or hears my voice. Now, most people in this particular, reading this text, we all know that Pilate said, what is truth? And go, oh, yes, as a politician, what is truth? Jesus actually says here, forget about the king thing. That's your terminology. I came to testify to the truth. Anyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Why did Jesus say that? And it's all about this word truth or reality. He's been talking about another reality. The kingdom is not of this world. He's saying there is another reality that is as different as the sun is from the earth. Another reality that is different as uh, a reality that is beyond this reality that is actually real. Another word for truth is real, isn't it? Something that is real rather than something that is just a shadow of what is real. Most of us think that what is happening on this earth is real and then kind of religious stuff is kind of unreal and a bit kind of airy-fairy. And most politicians are like that. Once a long time ago, I had a, 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 a cream tea at a mayoral event. You mentioned my mother. When my mother first became mayor of Waverley District Council, we had a cream tea in one of the pubs around here. And lots of politicians there, everybody on, our, on the table that I was sitting on, uh, I'd been asked to pray at this thing. So I prayed, you know, let there be justice in Waverley District Council, that's a thought, uh, and uh, various other things. Uh, and over tea, they then turned to me, mayors and MPs and various other people, and said, what is it you do? And I said, I go around talking to people about Jesus and trying to get people to pray. And then without thinking, I turned to one of the MPs and said, would you like a prayer group praying for you as an MP? And what do you think he said? Because everybody went quiet, I can tell you, because there were lots of people around that table. Everybody went, hmm. <laughs> what he said was this. I'd prefer if they did something practical. <laughs> I thought it was quite a clever answer, give him that. And I like him and he's a friend today. Uh, and so the question is, which is the most practical? The prayer or the outworking of what happened in prayer that's then seen in some way in this unreal world? Let me tell you, uh, recently I was involved in North Macedonia. Does anybody know where North Macedonia is? It used to be called Macedonia and it's not Greek. The Greeks think that Macedonia is their word because of Alexander the Great and all that, you know? But where there used to be a thing, there is, there is a, a province in the north of Greece called Macedonia. And then there is a nation just above them between Albania and Bulgaria and Serbia and Kosovo called North Macedonia. It was called Macedonia until recently and they agreed with the Greeks they would call themselves North Macedonia rather than Macedonia so that they might be able to join the EU. It's the heart of the Balkans. And the Balkans are a place where people used to like killing each other a lot. And that's because there's multiple different groups and they're all across everybody else's border. And they come from different ethnic groups and different languages. And I was with a group of Christians as we walked through that area praying. And I met some fantastic people. And they say, you wouldn't believe what we've achieved. One of them described how they got Christians together from all those nations in a hotel by a lake where Greece and Albania and Macedonia or North Macedonia meet. And actually the, the central point where the, 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 um, uh, where the three nations meet is in the middle of a lake. 
There's a line into the lake. This bit of the lake belongs to North Macedonia. That bit belongs to Greece. And that bit belongs to Albania. And they had this prayer event because there was tension between these three countries. And the prayer event included people from all the different backgrounds. And in the, they, they had this plan that they were going to go out in a boat together as prayer people. And these are people no one's ever heard of because they're just a bunch of slightly strange Christians who are into prayer. And they were going to go out to this point in the middle of the lake and have a time of prayer and drop salt over the side of the, the boat. And they hoped this would make a difference. So uh, on the day they were meant to do that, there was a massive storm and no boat could go on that lake at all. It was, it was completely weird. No one had ever seen it. like There were waves coming off this lake, hitting the shore in every direction. They couldn't go. But they had this extraordinary time of prayer with, um, with thunder and lightning as kind of background noise to their time of prayer. And they couldn't do what they were going to do, and they left. Three weeks later, guess what happened? Representatives of the three nations contacted each other from their governments without any knowledge of this prayer meeting and decided to put a boat in the middle of that lake and all of them signed an agreement that they would all be friends. And those intercessors, no one ever heard about it, but they're going, wow, we did that. Well, God did it, but you know, wow. Do you know what I'm saying? So question, which is the greater reality? That which changed something that then had a reflection in politics or the politics. The question is, what is the greater reality, the greater truth? You know, even in the time, and this is going to be slightly challenging for some of you, I hope not too challenging. In the time of Jesus, the Romans and the Greeks did not have a spiritual worldview that was equivalent to the Jews. They did not have a monotheistic idea. They had more of this idea of gods on the top of mountains and polytheism and lots of different deities. One of the key deities that soldiers in particular wanted to talk to was a god called Aletheia or Veritas. Aletheia in Greek, Veritas in, in uh, Latin. Their main shrine, does anybody know where the main shrine for Aletheia and Veritas was? Delphi. Uh, the Delphic Oracle was dedicated to this thing. And uh, they, the Delphic Oracle was almost completely female kind of prophetic types who got involved in all sorts of strange things using drugs and uh, hallucinogenics. And they went and they tried to find out what the truth was, because Aletheia means truth. Veritas means truth. So the God of truth... If you were a Roman soldier, one of the things you did before you went to war in a big way was to try and find out what the truth was from priests who worshipped war, or Apollyon was, Apollo was the god of war, and, a, and the god of war and, the, and Veritas Aletheia got together quite often to discuss who was going to win, what was going to happen, what was going to happen in the supernatural realm. And into that context, when Jesus has just said, my kingdom is not of this world, he then says, in fact, I came to testify of the truth. Aletheia is Greek. Uh, and anyone who is of the truth will hear my voice. What he's claiming is something bigger and deeper than the ultimate 
revelation of truth within the Roman world. And he's speaking to a Roman on Roman terms. And you might sit there and say, well, why does he do that? Well, a little bit later in Matthew's gospel, it tells us this, that while Pilate is standing in front of the the Jewish people, he says, "I, I find this man completely innocent. He's done nothing wrong. Can I give him back to you? And a message comes from his wife, have nothing to do with him because I have suffered much about this man. And I want to tell you that what I think happened is that his wife was one of the people who believed in Aletheia in the Greco-Roman world, was, a super, had, was part of this cult in some way, went along to this thing and went to the Veritas um, cult in Rome. And she has this weird experience where she brings a message saying, I heard something in the supernatural. Because even hard-bitten Roman soldiers live in this world surrounded by other people and many people are are spiritual, not just Christians. Have you noticed that? And sometimes, without them intending to, and you find this when Paul Saul goes to see a witch, and I'm not suggesting witchcraft is a good idea at all, but the witch finds herself connecting to something deeper and more real than she ever expected to discover. Because in the supernatural, there is a living God. That Saul, the apostle, who became Paul the Apostle. Saul, at one point, he's killing everybody who's a Christian. He gets knocked off his horse by something supernatural, a bright, bright blinding light. And his immediate knowledge is that he's just met the Lord. And he says, oh, Jesus. No, he doesn't. He says, who are you? I know I've just met something supernatural and real. Who are you, Lord? And the Lord says to him, I'm Jesus, who you're persecuting. He goes, oh. Why are you kicking against the pricks and all that? I think that this woman, Pilate's wife, in a supernatural experience, came and brought uh, something to Pilate. And here's the truth. Pilate had just been told by Jesus, anyone who is of the truth will hear my voice. She comes having heard his voice. In other words, what Jesus is trying to do is to say to Pilate, believe me. Believe that my kingdom is not of this world. Believe that I'm beyond all of the, but I'm beyond even all of that. I'm beyond even the Delphic Oracle. Believe me, and I'm going to give you a sign. And the sign's going to happen in the next few minutes while you're sitting out there. And the sign's going to be that your wife, who you know is of the truth, you're going to hear my voice. Wow. He's trying to win him. He's not trying to save his life. He's just trying to win him. Trying to make him know that it's real. Let me tell you this. Jesus Christ is real. In a way that we have no concept of reality. That all of this is just energy in a state of change, according to Einstein. Every bit of matter that we ever touch. The reality of God is far greater than anything we're dealing with. Any of the politics that's going on in the world. Any of your practical problems. It's beyond our health or lack of health, our life or death. Beyond all of these things, God is real. It's beyond all world religions, God is real. 
Sometimes you, you kind of say, oh, well, this person's got a faith and, you know, it really helped them through their difficult time. That's not the purpose of God. The, God, the purpose of God, or put in today's world, the purpose of religion is not to give us a cultural context which we shouldn't be, people shouldn't be upset about. The purpose of God is to be beyond all of that, the ultimate reality in, you know, beyond history. And that we can connect to him and he can connect to us in a real and tangible way. Enough so that Jesus could be confident, standing before Pilate, that no matter what he went through in the next 24 hours, he would rise from the dead and live forever. He was so aware of the ultimate reality that he was, that he wasn't worried about it. Some people say, so Jesus died. Well, here's a problem. The human being that God had become physically died on the cross. But if you happen to be life, can you die? God was life. Jesus was life. He says, I am the life. Yes? So if you are life, what happens when you die? Well, death dies, clearly, because you can't, it's, if you put a fireball in an ice block, it's not that the fireball freezes, it's the ice block melts. So he's alive again afterwards. And today's message is this, in a world where everybody's going, oh, why can't they tell the truth? What is true? What is real? Why can't the... You know, somebody be honest. If you connect with God, the real God, Jesus, you will find somebody and something that is a rock that in the midst of total chaos your feet can land on. And he will be genuinely there. I'm not promising that he will change everything around you, but he will be genuinely there. Uh, this week I've been reading a book by Philip Yancey. How many of you have ever read a book by Philip Yancey? Okay, if you've never read a book by Philip Yancey, I really want to encourage you to read this book. It's called Where the Light Falls. It's his latest book. It's called, it's a memoir. Philip Yancey, if you ever read his other books, he feels like a, a quite intellectual professor type from America who is writing books about suffering and prayer and God and his reality. There's a beautiful book called What's So Amazing About Grace. And he comes across as a, the kind of person who probably came from a really nice, stable background and was quite intellectual and went to university a lot. Uh, those of you who've read those books, is that how you would get it? Is that how you'd feel it? Well, this book is one of the most disturbing books I've ever read, and I would like you to read it if you get a chance. Because you find out that Philip Yancey's background is from deep south, deep South American fundamentalism. And his testimony is that throughout his childhood, they lied to him over and over and over again. And they messed with the lives of those involved in a terrible, terrible way. And then he connected with God. And he still writes books, but part of his greatest commitment is to write books which tell the truth that tell the honest truth, that don't hide from the reality. That actually, if you suffer and die, 
you know, if you love God but you suffer and die from some nasty disease, let's not pretend that didn't happen. It did. Rather than go, oh well, we're all okay, it'll be fine. And look kind of smiley when on the inside you're dying. Let's tell the truth to one another. That has been his commitment all his life. Actually, the other thing is you kind of get the feeling of, wow, he probably had a fantastic life to be able to write books and travel around the world and do amazing things. His mother was mentally ill. His brother pretty much died of mental illness. He had to look after them. His father died. Well, you should read the book of why his father died when he was 24. They were deeply poverty-stricken almost all the way through their lives. And people's lives around him fell apart, mostly because they were involved in Christianity, in the fundamentalist version of it. And I'm contrasting fundamentalism to what you and I do here. We love Jesus, we believe that scripture is the divine word of God, and we love, we know that Jesus is real, but there's something different from that and kissing your brains goodbye and being weird with each other, which is not what this is about. And so I recommend you read this book. And this is why I'm saying this, because all truth is God's truth. Anything that is genuinely true comes from God, because God is beyond this world or even the religions of this world. He is beyond all that and calling us to love God in Christ and, because, and only because of Jesus is it possible for us to be forgiven and accepted. And here's another little thing which I think is amazing. Isn't it wonderful? Isn't it wonderful that Jesus, at the point when he was about to be crucified, was trying to reach Pilate in his own terms, in his own language. And he was setting up a miracle that would happen where his wife would talk to him a few minutes later to try and reach him. Isn't that amazing? It wasn't to save his life. It was to reach him. Isn't it amazing that Jesus is so, so beyond what we think is important, often on a day-by-day basis? Cost of living crisis. Isn't that a fake thing? Did you see that this week? That the, the, the cost of living crisis has happened in the most extraordinary way. The, the market says we should pay more for fuel. So we all have to pay more for fuel, which then goes to the company, which doesn't need more money because it's already making a massive profit. And then the government has to take it back off that company to try and give it back to us. That's a bit weird, isn't it? I mean, just sorry. That's a bit weird, isn't it? Um, so actually, it's all about a kind of economic cycle thing. As a friend of mine put it, money doesn't exist. It's just ones and noughts somewhere in a computer. But it messes with our lives, doesn't it? It really is messing with our lives. I'm not pretending. But we're trusting this system. And God is saying, my kingdom's not of this world. Otherwise, I'd fight it all. And he doesn't fight it all, does he? He calls us to apologize and to worship. And when we do, and we connect with that ultimate reality, God then sends his signs and wonders from that place which is beyond this world into our life. What it says in the scripture is we get a down payment, a deposit now, And one day, 
in glory will get the rest. So you've had your eulogy, you'll get a proper one later, and you'll get a totally fantastic one in heaven. Because that's when it will be for real. Shall we stand together, if you can? And we'll pray.